Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. We have a special guest here, but before we get to him, uh, I'm Jesse Vondercheck, one of the hosts. We also have Elliot. Hey, everybody. Elliot Bassett, Mountain Endurance uh, Coaching. Or I guess it's just Mountain Endurance, but anyways, carry on. Marilyn. And Marilyn. Hey, guys. Good to be with you today. You can find me, as always, at mcc.coach. And our very special guest, Scott Tyndall. Thank you, Jesse, Elliot, and Marilyn for having me on this show. It's, uh, as I was saying before, before we came on air, I don't think I've ever done one with three hosts. So uh, we're going to see how this goes. Yeah, be careful. There's going to be questions coming at you from every side. Um, I'm excited. <laughs> so before we get into it, can you tell uh, us and the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and um, yeah, how you got to where you are today? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, I'm Australian and just found out that Maryland used to live in a, a very small country town, which is about six hours south of Sydney, where I grew up, uh, which is slightly bizarre, but um, it shows how small the world is. Um, I'm currently based in Sydney, near Manly, uh, where a lot of tourists will tend to come to because it's a very beautiful part of the world on the northern beaches of Sydney. Um yeah, I originally started as a physiotherapist. I studied physiotherapy at the University of Sydney uh, before moving to England. And I ended up living in England for, you know, the better part of 12 and a half years. And during that time, I, uh, you know, a lot of self-reflection and, and whatnot in just personal life, but <clears throat> managed to go and study, uh, do a master's uh, in sports medicine at the University of London. And that that really opened up a lot of pathways into uh, differing sports. My my background as an athlete was in rugby, rugby union, um, and I had you know ambitions to play professional rugby, but that was cut short due to an injury. Uh, and then I, I was lucky enough to go and work for a, a couple of professional uh, rugby union teams in England, uh, which is sort of like the NFL, I guess, over there. Like you know, I know rugby is getting a lot more popular in America. Uh, and very popular in Canada. So uh, that that was an amazing experience, just uh, sort of getting me into the whole world of professional uh, and elite sport. And after I finished up with rugby, I actually, you know, again, it's not the typical pathway into triathlon, but I worked with uh, British rowing uh, with their Olympic team, uh, England cricket. And we were just talking about cricket. Cricket's not well known in America, but we can get into that later. Uh, and then and with the Paralympics, which were held in London at the time, working with blind wrestlers, which was, again, a very unique opportunity to work with a differing uh, sort of caliber of athlete. And um, beyond that, I then decided to do some more study because I was a sucker for punishment. So my master's sort of got me into uh, an interest in nutrition. I think I started to see the connection between how important nutrition was to physiotherapy and injury rehabilitation and injury prevention. Uh, and so I decided to do some postgraduate study in performance nutrition and, and came out of that. And that then really opened up the door uh, for other teams to sort of seek out my skill set, I guess, in that sense, because I had like this, you know, the physiotherapy sports medicine hat and then also this performance nutrition hat. So Oracle Team USA uh, for the America's Cup reached out to me. They just defended the cup in uh, San Francisco. Uh, with that sort of remarkable comeback that they had and they were relocating to Bermuda for uh, the defense of the America's Cup. And so I was invited to join the for team. the listener the... who's a triathlon dork, that's sailing. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, profession yeah, yeah. professional I have a friend sailing. who's into sailing, So, but explain that a little bit too. Yeah, so it's professional sailing. It was on these foiling catamarans, which, uh, you know, they go 50 knots, which is close to 100 kilometers an hour or what's that, 75, 80, 60. 80 miles, 60 miles, um, 60 miles an hour on the water. So they're sort of like these flying hovercraft uh, spaceships. And uh, so, yeah, we lived in Bermuda. And if I don't know, have you guys been to Bermuda? No, no but I, was... I coached someone from there. <laughs> yeah, I'm friends uh, yeah. with someone from there on their national team. Yeah. Um, uh, what's her name? Um, she just, she won the Olympics. Um, oh no. I'm friends with Erica Holly. Who's, oh, okay. She's on there. Like, uh, if everything goes well, the Commonwealth games, uh, relay team, but yes, okay. knows Flora as well. Obviously. Flora Duffy. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I mean, Bermuda's famous in the triathlon world because of Flora. Um, 
it's an amazing island and I'd hundred percent recommend you all go to Bermuda, but keep in mind, it is the most expensive place on earth. Actually fact like that is actually, if you Google most expensive place on earth, it comes up as the most expensive, but it's also tax-free. So it was pretty cool. So, uh, you know, we had a team there. I was head physio and uh, team nutritionist and, you know, there's only, what was there, six, eight, eight sailors on the boat, but we had a team of 125. So majority of those were like engineers and mechanics and boat builders. And then we had like professional chefs. We had two trainers, um, you know, the team went on. And so I was responsible for looking after them, which was, which was amazing. And, you know, professional sailing is not, I think when I joined the team, my idea of sailing was sitting on the deck with a beer in your hand. I think that's most people's uh, sort of perception of sailing. But, you know, these guys were legit and they are legit athletes. Um, you know, they could deadlift, you know, probably 250 uh, going up, what, 200 kilos. So what's that? That's 300, 350 pounds, something like that. Um, they, you know, threshold, 20 minute sort of time trial they're pushing sort of 300 watts with their arms when they're grinding um peak heart rate average heart rate uh sort of up i think peak heart rate we had one guy at sort of 209 beats per minute yeah like these guys are fit guys um you know exceptional vo2 and whatnot so that that was great um sort of putting into the practical sense of nutrition and then from there after we lost i, I went and worked in boston and worked for a biotech company in um, metabolomics which is to do with gut health and um i don't know have you guys done have you done any gut testing or anything no no never i've um, got family members who have crohn's disease so i'm pretty well aware <laughs> okay so yeah my my mum's a celiac so it was quite interesting going and working for this company which looked at so it looks at metabolites in the blood um so that is the study of metabolomics and looking at the function of the gut as opposed to sort of the output um where most people would look at stool testing so testing poo effectively which has its limitations but so does blood testing um, and that's where I met um, Sarah Piampiano, who a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with as a professional female triathlete. Um, and she, you know, we, we started a journey way back in uh, 2017, which uh, resulted in me building the program that is now Fuel In, uh, which is the iOS app and the program that we run online uh, for, you know, a lot of athletes. And it was during that time Sarah and I sort of built up the whole program. I then relocated to Canada, to Toronto, and worked as the um, performance nutritionist or the team nutritionist for the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, in hockey, or I used to call it ice hockey, but I was told that, uh, you know, it's hockey and uh, you shouldn't refer to it as ice hockey, but uh, that's a whole other story. Um, you know, I'm Canadian, right, Scott? Uh, are you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you from in Toronto? Uh, in uh, Canada. Calgary. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I remember we had this conversation. I was like, Oh, it's ice hockey. And they're like, no, it's hockey. And then I was like, you do realize there's another form of hockey. And they were like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So field (laughs) hockey doesn't exist. Um, you know, just played by hundreds of thousands of people, but anyway, (laughs) so yeah, I mean, look, the experience with the Maple Leafs was incredible. I, I don't think I've ever seen, you know, you think of like Larry Ellison with like Oracle, which, you know, he's what the fifth richest guy in the world. And you think like, that's pretty impressive with what was put in terms of financial support for the team. And then you go to the next level with the Maple Leafs and you're like, holy shit, like I've never seen like so much money like being thrown around for a, a bunch of athletes. So pretty, pretty remarkable experience. Learned a lot from that. Um, and then I think really the passion for triathlon grew with um, the experience of working with Sarah and her opening my eyes to uh, what is the wonderful sport of triathlon beyond that. And that's where I, I currently sit is, uh, you know, being a co-founder of a, a business which is online and, you know, helping out hundreds of uh, triathletes now uh, to improve their nutrition. Awesome. So that kind of took you from being a full-time like sports physiotherapist to being what is now maybe a full-time uh, pr- sports performance like nutritionist. Yeah, I, um, I haven't really practiced you know, physiotherapy and it's sort of, you know, 
isolated art for a number of years now and really focused on being a nutritionist because to be honest I find it a lot more interesting <laughs> um, I, I think the world of nutrition is just so amazing and the research is constantly changing the evidence is changing and I think you know you it's so powerful in yeah, I, I had some, I had many, many great experiences as a physio and I still have many friends from uh, the athletes that I've rehabilitated from, you know, career ending injuries to, you know, them, you know, being very grateful and thankful for what went on. But I, I honestly, I love the impact that nutrition can have to just someone's well-being. I think when you, when you transform like Sarah, for instance, you know, we, we worked together to try and improve her race performance, but what became very clear was that her health was not good. Um, and by improving her health, we actually improved her performance. And I think if you if you look at our underlying principles that fuel in, it is that it's like, you know, a healthy athlete is, you know, the, the what's well, the second principle, the first one is do no harm. Um, but you know, the second principle is that a, a healthy athlete is a high performing athlete. And I think we see that constantly now with all our athletes as we as we sort of really get into the crux of you know being a healthier athlete on a day-to-day -day basis that they seem to see you know performance gains on the racetrack. I know one thing uh before we started Jesse and I were we're talking about kind of fueling for day-to-day -day living as opposed to you know fueling for in the race um but while you're here Let's talk about wrestling because you worked with blind wrestlers. You don't know this. I have a large background in wrestling and grew up uh, in a hub of American wrestling anyways. So one uh, really annoying thing when you wrestle a blind guy is you have to be touching him at all times, which is just a huge pain in the butt if you're somebody who doesn't like to be touching him. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, um, basically, so there's some amazing blind wrestlers and it's just crazy if, if you're practicing with them or whatnot. You're like, OK, this guy can't see me and he's better than me. Um, it's it's pretty cool. But um, wrestling has. Yeah, go for it. So just on that, I have. Yeah. Like, so the Russian guy who was, I think he was the defending Olympic champion. Mm -hmm. He dislocated his shoulder, but won in the, uh, so he dislocated his shoulder in the match that then put him into the, uh, the bronze medal match. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to relocate his shoulder and then I was like, well, it's finished. Like, you know, it's game over and his coach like looked at me and went no 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 and he just like he asked what was happening he obviously didn't speak any english the translator got involved and he was like no tape me up and i was like i can like you know obviously tape your shoulder it's relocated but it's going to pop out as soon as like the guy yanks on it and uh, he was like doesn't matter and he just went into that match dislocated his shoulder and i think he still actually got the bronze like it was you know you talk about mental toughness and physical toughness these guys were like next level yeah, it's it's a part of the sport. Like I, I beat a three-time Wisconsin state champ. This is a lot lower levels than the Olympics, uh, without being able to look left. And my coaches basically just looked at me and said, Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, like, oh, you can't look left all week and you're 15. And so what the reason I brought it up though, this is a triathlon podcast. Um, weight cutting is a part of wrestling, and I'm sure you had to deal with that. And weight management is a part of wrestling, and a lot of triathletes get a little overly concerned probably in jesse and marilyn and i's opinion with weight and you're talking about sarah being healthy so like with that mindset of knowing someone needs to manage their weight to hit a goal but also note noticing like a lot of people get kind of like maybe a little overly concerned with what is race weight kind of like that information the wrestling world the triathlon world like what information would you have for somebody to say like this is how you fuel your day to day. And I am imagining that you're going to say you need to be well fueled for these workouts to go well and the weight will come. So like, what's kind of your philosophy thoughts on that and, and any tips? Yeah, I think uh, like the weight cutting, uh, thankfully in the wrestling, I actually didn't have to experience that, but I hear like any of those combat sports, there is a lot of that going on. You read about it in the MMA in particular. And actually with the sailing, <laughs> we actually had weight cutting. Uh, because there was a particular weight on the boat. So yeah, we used sauna protocols and dehydration protocols to get to that weight. And then you obviously super, you know, rehydrate afterwards. It's nothing, look, to be honest, none of those sort of weight cutting protocols would ever be advisable in a triathlon. Like you just wouldn't do it. And anyone who is 
mean, using saunas to drop weight before a race is an idiot. Um, in my opinion, you're just going to end up, you know, not finishing the race. So I wouldn't go down that route. I think in terms of understanding race weight, one of the, um, one of the things that we look at doing within the fuel program is really establishing, you know, being objective about it. So if you, if you think you're overweight, then like understand what that means. So I would look at getting what we call a DEXA scan to start. So a DEXA scan is like a full body X-ray. It'll give you a measure of subcutaneous fat, but also visceral fat. So the fat around your organs, um, but it also gives you bone mineral density. And I think for, you know, a lot of the athletes, they, they may, you know, cause there is this argument, isn't there against like how important is weight or how important is dropping body fat and so on. So I think you've got to look at realistically, like, do you have body fat to drop to get you a, to a healthy standpoint and then B think about racing as well, because if you're overweight, like let's say your visceral fat is up around a hundred or, you know, a hundred centimeters um, squared. And, th and that's quite high just for the listeners out there. You have what's called an Android gynoid ratio, which is the measurement between your midsection and your hips. And again, that ratio should be less than one again. And this is to prevent sort of risk of disease or reduce risk of disease, like cardiovascular disease, stroke, things like that, which again, are health measures. If that's over one, okay. We again, know that you're probably not in a healthy weight category. Um, and then you could look at, you know, uh, again, another measure, which is called your fat mass index, which is your total amount of fat divided by your height squared, which is a much better for a much better measure for athletes as opposed to BMI. So body mass index doesn't take into account muscle. Uh, so for a lot of athletes, like, you know, for myself, I think I come in at like 28 or 29 on a BMI, which puts me at borderline obese. Now I'm not borderline obese. I just have a little bit more muscle mass than population-based statistics. And for a lot of you athletes, you're going to have a higher BMI. So it's not relevant to you. So fat mass index would be a better measure. And again, if you're sitting over six, you know, six and a half from a health perspective, you're probably not that healthy. So that's a way of at least quantifying where do you sit on that scale of healthy versus unhealthy from a body composition standpoint. Um, and that could help drive, you know, potentially okay, I carry a lot of extra body fat. Potentially, I do need to lose body fat from a health perspective, and that may help my racing as well. So if you are in that category, let's say you are kind of slightly overweight by one of these measures, do you have like kind of a, a, a protocol that you like to put athletes through to say, here's a healthy way to approach this? Yeah, I think, again, and hopefully no Americans are going to be upset by this, but what, what we typically see is that Americans don't eat a lot of vegetables. And, and it's probably, you know, again, majority of our athlete base is in America at the moment, um, you know, America and then Australia. And Can I give you a pro tip. Yeah. America, 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 America. America. Okay, America. Carry on. <laughs> when I lived um, in Australia, I got a lot of tips on how to speak appropriately. So I'm trying to return the favor. Yeah, nice. I like that. I like that. I'll say USA. Um, <laughs> uh, so look, you know, you talk about how do you approach sustainable weight loss? You certainly don't want to be going on this like crazy caloric deficit diet of liquids only and, and just really pushing it so hard that you're losing, you know, over a kilo a week. Yeah, if you're losing more than a kilo a week, you're probably, you know, and if that's for three or four more weeks, it's probably not going to be sustainable and you're going to end up bouncing back to, you know, this typical yo-yo dieting sort of experience that a lot of athletes go through. So in talking about, like, I guess, maybe increasing vegetable intake, how do you do that with training? One of the things that I definitely want to get to is kind of how, how you can structure your meals. Like we've got a lot of people that are, you know, pretty busy working a lot and trying to hit say a morning session and an evening session. And I know a lot of things that people struggle with is, well, how do I do that? If I'm trying to train twice a day, you know, around, around a work day. Yeah. Especially with the run. Like if you have a run in the afternoon, right. I'm sure Marilyn and, Je and Jesse both have talked to someone recently who had the afternoon run that had a few too many stops. Yeah. That's a um, whole other bullet point I have down here, but uh, yeah. 
But I think that yeah. kind of pulls into your point or your question, Jesse, right? Fair enough. Like, how do we do that? Well, how do you structure it? Yeah, yeah. look, I, I think, you know, if you've got a, a single training day, then morning and morning is typically going to be where most athletes are training. I mean, you're not going to eat vegetables prior to that session. You're probably going to reduce your total fiber intake before that session, but certainly don't be afraid. I mean, depending on the length of that session and the intensity of that session is probably going to drive what you eat before, but you know, toast, toast is a great pre-session meal. Like everyone's like, Oh, what can I eat? I need to like create something really fancy. It's like, well, if it's a really long, hard and, and, you know, type session, then probably keep your fiber intake down. So use white toast. If it's not too bad and you want to get a little bit of fiber in, eat some whole grain toast. It's like, it's pretty simple. Like you don't have to be going crazy with your thought process around what pre-snack meals to eat. Now, that would be one way of at least providing something to yourself before a session if it's required again based on your total caloric needs for the day and for the week depending again on your goal if your goal is to lose weight you can still eat a meal prior to a session feel really good in that session and still lose weight by controlling the total amount of energy that you're eating across the rest of the day um, and i think that's a really important point like faster training it's probably not going to be the thing that gets you to lose all your weight. Like, I'm sorry to say, it's going to be your total caloric deficit across the rest of the day that's going to have that bigger impact. So I would argue that you're better off having a snack before that session. It's really, really hard doing the best you can in that session. And then, you know, just gradually reducing the total calories and, and being mindful of what you're eating for the rest of the day that's going to probably have a bigger impact on it. And so just to remind the listener, you're essentially working as a, a dietitian nutritionist now, but you have a background in physiotherapy. So fasted training, do you see an increased risk in injury, especially with harder workouts? If you're going in fasted, not really. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's such a difficult question to answer because it depends on how long you do that for. Like, you know, you do a sporadic, you know, fasted training before a session that's somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes long, you'll be fine. Like, yeah, come on. Like you don't have to eat before a 60 minute session. Come on. And well, so that's probably just as big of a takeaway though. Cause I think a lot of people I, I know like on the other end of that, like is someone who's like, I'm going to go do my 5k jog. And like, it's like the office where like, uh, where the guy's eating a bowl of like fettuccine Alfredo and you're like, that's 2000 calories and you're about to burn 300. Yeah. Um, so like, I think that's a major takeaway, even in and of itself is like, how long is the session? How intense is the session? So is then, are you also implying, well, if you're about to do two and a half hours on the bike and you're going to do a bunch of sprints, yeah, probably don't go into that under fueled because that could really bite you in the butt, whether it leads to injury or just a massive bonk. Yeah, massively. Like, and, and you've hit the nail on the head. It's all that context, isn't it? And like, Everyone reads all these, like, you know, as I like to say, everyone does their research, which is utter crap. Um, you know, people read like an abstract or a conclusion of a paper or listen to someone, um, you know, talking about a study. And it's like, they then go, oh, well, that, that's what I need to do. And it's like, but you haven't thought about how that applies to what you're trying to achieve. If you've got, like, as you said, a, a zone three session that goes for two and a half hours, why would you go into that fasted? Like the point of that session is to perform. It's not to like burn fat or any of that. Like, you know, think about what you're doing when you're doing it. So if that was a Z2 session and it's long duration, but low intensity. Yeah. I mean, if it's over a certain period of time, let's say over 90 minutes and you've got to continue beyond that 90 minutes, I would certainly eat something before that. If it's less than 80 or 90 minutes and it's low intensity, okay, you can probably go into that session fasted knowing that it's not going to feel great, but there is potentially some physiological adaptation in relation to that. But then after that session, you certainly want to refuel. Don't, don't go into a session fasted, don't do the session fasted and then finish the session and don't eat anything because then you're just in a breakdown mode and you're just going to, as you said, increase the risk of injury over time. It may not happen. You could do it once. You might be able to do it twice. You might even be able to do it for a whole month, but I can guarantee you it will catch up with you and it will bite you in the ass eventually. And, and that's what we tend to see is when people, you know, especially... And, and I will generalize, but female athletes in particular, they go into a sport like triathlon trying to manage weight, 
and they get into it to lose weight. And so they think they've got to restrict all their calories and all their food because they're doing all this exercise. And then they just don't see the bigger picture of how that's going to impact their health. Yeah, on that, uh, I'll jump in here if you don't mind and ask a question just along those lines. I get a lot of questions as a coach for females over the age of 40 and into their, um, you know, menopausal years and, and a lot of them looking for different answers than the younger ladies out there in nutrition. That's a pretty huge topic and there's a lot of information out there and, um, you know, some of it I've seen work well, some of it I completely disagree with. And I'd be real interested to hear your opinion on, on that whole topic. I know it's a big one. So maybe just your broad <laughs> paint brush. So tell me, brush. tell me what you disagree with first, because that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Well, I've seen some uh, recommendations that they, they really, really restrict carbohydrates and go very high on protein and fat and use a lot of fat for fueling even within their sessions. And I feel like no matter what, no matter what age we are, we're doing an endurance sport. And for most of these events, they're going to be racing over two and a half hours if they're in that age bracket. And even from an Olympic distance race, certainly half Ironman, they're going to be out there for you know, let's say at least five hours or, or more, and then into Ironmans. And so to be doing the kind of training for that at that age and, and being, you know, primarily focused on protein only and fats only, I just feel like that's not, not something I've seen work very well. Anyone who's doing that is an idiot. Like dead set, I, I cannot, I, I could not even point to one scientific piece of research that would support that notion of thinking for someone who is in their 40s approaching menopause and restricting carbohydrates and going high fat, like you are just going to end up a disaster. Like from a, from a health perspective to a performance perspective, it would be crazy to take that approach. And I'm happy to have that debate with anyone who's trying to push that on their athletes. But, and I hope none of you guys, <laughs> I take no, it. That's why not, I said, like, I really disagree like, with that. Whenever I hear oh, it, man. Like, that is, that is the come to me, worst they, approach. Yeah. And they're saying that they're doing that or they're trying that approach. I get pretty, I get pretty, um, oh man, I try and be really nice about it, but pretty. No, do not be nice about that. Just poo poo it. <laughs> quickly and just tell them that they're being idiots in trying to do that. Like I'm, I, would, I would take some hard love sort of tough love approach on that and just say like, what are you trying to achieve with that? I mean, you talk about postmenopausal. yes, protein becomes, and let's take a step back. I, I think everyone gets a little bit too caught up in like, Ooh, I'm in my twenties. I need this specific approach. I'm in my thirties. I need this. I'm in my forties. Like get rid of that. <clears throat> Sorry, simplify it. We know that endurance athletes are going to need a higher amount of protein these days. Like in the last five years, suddenly it's been, everyone now recognizes that protein isn't going to make you a bodybuilder because you guys don't have the stimulus. You don't have that training stimulus to create muscle hypertrophy. You might in the off season to try and get some weights training in. But when it comes to actual training and supporting that training, that protein is just supporting muscle recovery and bone recovery, tendon recovery. That's all it's doing. It's stopping you from, sorry, my voice is going. I'll, uh, I'll let you get a glass of water and there ask we go. a question on that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, so I went to school for exercise physiology and briefly was in grad school, same thing. And this is like mid two thousands. So old information as of now. And I remember my professor was using a triathlete who had done XYZ training. And it was literally exactly what I had done that day, just by chance. And then she was saying, what should this person eat? And then the example she gave was exactly what I had eaten, except I had added in like more peanut butter and maybe like an egg. And she basically sat down and said, this is way too much protein. And granted, you have to remember, this is like 2003 or four. And I'm relatively well-educated at the time, um, had done a lot of educating outside of the classroom, but <laughs> It was more just like practical. And I think, you know, Jesse and Marilyn and I have, have all seen a lot of this stuff. Like you have to eat um, to be well-fueled. And if you're training a high enough volume, I was probably doing like 20-ish hours a week, maybe a little more at the time. That's um, a lot. 
yeah, with a full school load, et cetera. Um, I was a go getter, but, uh, anyways, the point is like, have you seen that change in the research? Cause I don't like, I spend most of my time looking more at like non-nutrition research these days. Um, and so like in your opinion, like what, what have you seen over the last 10, 15, 20 years change, like on a protein front or on the macros, uh, training for endurance sport? Well, I mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Like every macro seems to get their time in the spotlight and, you know, like, and you take it back, work how many years ago? And it was, everyone was doing high fat because it was suddenly like, you know, keto is going to make 40, 30, 30 had its shine, you know? Yeah, Yeah. All this sort of stuff. So I think what, you know, the big takeaway I'd give to every athlete is like, they just don't work in a silo and anything. And we know this from like, even let's take it back to the sporting professional sporting organization and group is whenever a, a team works in isolation. So when the strength and conditioning works in isolation to the physiotherapy or the sports medicine department to the coaching department, you don't get good results. And I'd say the same thing with macronutrients is that they all play a really important role to support the health of the athlete. So if we look at protein, and yes, as I said, in the last sort of five to 10 years, that research has really come on as a result of uh, increasing the total amount of protein that endurance athletes are now taking in. And certainly from our perspective and what we push is a much higher protein consumption than what was probably typical. And that's generally the response of the athlete is like, wow, I've never eaten so much protein, but gee, my recovery feels so much better. And it's, you have to remember as well, that World Health Organization recommendation of 0.8 grams per kilo body weight is to sustain life. It's not to perform in a triathlon. Like there's a big distinction between just hanging around and, and surviving versus like trying to run a half marathon with a 90K bike ride and a swim beforehand. Like your body is going to need a lot more of each of those macronutrients in order to thrive as opposed to survive. Can you put some numbers on like some protein recommendations you might make for an athlete that's training pretty consistently? Yeah, I think, look, just really simple for most of the athletes out there. And again, whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, um, even female, male, I think you can all just say like, okay, just aim as a general rule, whatever you weigh in pounds, at least try and get that in protein, in grams. So if you're a 120 pound athlete, try and get 120 grams of protein. I think the minimum, and this is again, like, and again, if you're a 220 guy, you're aiming for 220 grams of protein. Now, for the really small athlete, female athlete, eating 120 grams of protein can feel like a massive chore for the 220 pound guy, trying to get in that 220 grams of protein is a chore because they struggle to actually just get that in, in food. So that's where supplementation can be advantageous. Um, You know, for the really heavy athlete, a supplement can be really good. Um, For the female athlete who struggles to eat that amount of protein, that's where a supplement can be really good as well. So it's convenience factor as much as anything. Um, What I would say is we we get a lot of athletes, female athletes who are under 120 pounds as well. I would say the minimum threshold that I think an endurance athlete should be eating is 120 grams a day. Now that's just based on practical experience. It's not based on grams per kilo body weight or anything like that. I just think again, you're under it, you're 110 pounds, aim for 120 because it's also going to count towards your total calorie intake for the day. And at some point you've just got to get the calories up, especially if training volume is very, very high. But I wouldn't be relying, I wouldn't be relying on protein to get your total calories up either. Um, You know, it's not going to be an efficient one. It's very effective to create satiety. So feeling of fullness, which could be really useful if you're trying to drop some body fat and drop weight. So that's where a higher protein intake could be advantageous as well. But to your point, Marilyn, it's not going to be, I would not be recommending a high protein, high fat diet for someone who's trying to perform at their best. I think, and also the, the one question I had there, and like I say, it's, it's probably the most common question I get right now is, 
where it, it doesn't change for women after a certain age with what they need in terms of fueling. And, and a lot of them, you know, they find that their metabolism changes and it's a little trickier for them to, to lose weight, even if they're doing a really good job. Two athletes, two types of athletes ask me that question often. If they're an endurance athlete, they're struggling to lose weight. They already have great nutrition. And the two types are women who are um, in their menopausal years. And the other type is a diabetes athlete. And, and I do coach many uh, a, a few of both of those types of athletes, they, they, um, you know, they do a good job of their nutrition, but what, you know, what they might need is going to be probably a little bit beyond what a normal, you know, just, I don't know what they can find on their own or what they can play around with on their own to, to get that absolute best body composition for their sport. Do you have any insight and tips for them? Uh, I guess, I guess the first question is what is a good diet uh, and good what are they doing good versus what do they need because I think and this comes back to right at the start where we're talking about like eating for day-to-day versus eating for performance because you know if we're talking about high performance then you're going to be sucking back a fair bit of refined carbohydrates aren't you yeah in order to go really quickly you're going to need a high carbohydrate intake to support your body working at that sort of threshold you know that's just physiology Now, am I going to be recommending consuming huge amounts of refined carbohydrates on a daily basis for good health? No. So the point to them might be, you're doing a really great job of eating good quality vegetables. I'd probably guess they're not eating enough protein. Majority of women just don't eat enough protein, especially um, triathletes. I'd look at that. And then I would say to them, what does their performance nutrition look like? And obviously a diabetic, it becomes, you know, are they type one, are they type two, are they insulin dependent, whatnot. Um, but is that postmenopausal female, is she actually consuming the right amount of calories in the right amount of form to actually go really, really fast? And more often than not, no is the answer. You, you start to look at grams of uh, grams per hour of carbohydrate that they're consuming on the bike. And it's like, okay, you consume 25 grams of carbs per hour. Like you are not going to go quick. You are not going to perform very well if you're only consuming 25 grams per hour, like given. That is way too little. If you're listening, trying to do the math, that's hundred calories an hour. And I think all of us are going to recommend at least double of that, even for a pretty small person. But, yeah, uh, I can tell you for, now, is, is, I can yeah. tell you now that that is what's happening. So in our, in the fuel in app, like we have the ability, you know, they can track carb consumption. We, we push it a lot, carb testing, sweat testing. And, you know, these athletes will come to you and they, and it's not belittling them or anything. It's like, it's an education process. It's like, what, what are you actually doing? Like you tell me that you're doing everything and then you actually break it down and you actually start recording it. And you're like, okay, this is how many gels I had. I had one gel every 45 minutes. It's like, well, that's 25 grams of carbs every 45 minutes. Like you break that down over an hour and a half or two hours. Again, you're at 30 grams. Like that's not enough to perform at your absolute best. Let's start to increase that for a female. The minimum amount I would be aiming for is 0.8 grams per kilo body weight. Now that's to start training the gut and training your carb consumption. For a male, it's probably one gram per kilo body weight as the absolute minimum you want to start hitting. So for a a six, let's say a 70 kilo male, which is what 70 kilos is 150 pounds. Yeah, but you're saying uh, it was 154, but... um... You're enough. saying I I've, well, I lived in Australia and Canada. I went to grad school in Canada, so I did both anyways. Um, so a, a 150 pound athlete, you know, you're talking, you know, that's rain, roughly aiming for a male aiming for around 70 grams per hour. Um, that as a minimum for a 110 pound female athlete, you're probably aiming for around that 55 to 60 grams as a minimum amount. And that's going to take time to get to. A lot of people, I'm actually curious, like I've always noticed in marathoning, it's like a joke when, uh, you know, you do triathlon for a while or you do bike racing even, and and you're out there for four hours, like kind of five hours, even on the limit. And I came from triathlon where fueling pretty early days was talked about quite regularly in marathoning. People would talk about doing one or two gels, which like you're saying, 50 grams of carbohydrate, 200 calories. And you're out there for two and a half, three, some four hours. And I was like doing the math and I I did a a marathon 
um, you know, not really training for a marathon, but I, I can't remember how much I took in, but I took in like six, seven, 800 calories in two and a half hours. And everybody was like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I would do the same thing if it was a triathlon and I was on the bike. So I didn't really see any difference in it. Um, do you see that like in all sports? I'm curious, like how much do you talk about that with hockey players and how much do you talk about that with like in game? Cause that kind of stuff is so short, right. Or like with rugby where it's a bit more continuous. Do you talk about that as well? Well, I think that this is the biggest distinction. This is why I love triathlon because nutrition will have the biggest impact on your race. Okay. Like you can get through a hockey match you can get through a rugby match, probably, you know, maybe not even eating anything. It, it would probably impact it, but it's not going to impact it to the same degree of a 70. And let's talk 70.3 or Ironman distance. If your nutrition is not good, you are, you're severely doing yourself a disservice because your performance is absolutely going to be linked to your nutrition. And, and I don't think I'd, I'd struggle to understand or believe that anyone would disagree with that because the duration of what a triathlon, a triathlete is going through is going to be massively impacting, you know, uh, fuel utilization and, and the way in which they're using that fuel is going to have that impact on, on the athlete for that race day. Uh, versus say like, you know, even, okay, we talk hockey. I remember when we started, I started bringing in like the guys, like really making sure at every interval, they would have a gel. And it was like, we don't need this. And it's like, you are moving at extreme speeds in an anaerobic, you know, your, your utilization, you are just using pure carbs for every sprint effort they're doing. So why wouldn't you take in a gel, 25 grams of carbs every, you know, period just to at least keep you at a, a decent sort of level, keep your brain sharp. Carbohydrates also has the impact on, you know, acuity in terms of brain function. So why wouldn't you do that in, in a sport where it requires a huge amount of coordination um, at speed? And so, yeah, I, it, it is really important, but I think more so in the world of triathlon, I think nutrition is, is so important. So you're talking about, sorry, Marilyn, you want to jump in here? Okay. You're talking about an, a fair amount of carbohydrate per hour for someone while they're racing. How do you recommend athletes take that in? In the race? Yeah. Well, first thing is they need to practice it in training. Sure. And, and that's the other thing that's lost on a lot of people. They go, you know, you might do all this training. You do your swim, you bike, you run, you, you get through it all. And then you forget that you haven't actually practiced any of your race day nutrition you come to a race and uh, you know, you suddenly think, Oh shit, I've got to, uh, uh, I've got to start consuming carbs on this, don't I? And then they try and consume, you know, worst case, they start trying to consume 60 grams of carbs and even that causes GI distress. And then they have a really bad race and they wonder why. And it's because you didn't actually practice any of that in your training. And that that's where I think like the message we try and get across is like, let's build a consistent routine and, and be, um, you know, have consistency in what you're actually practicing from a practical standpoint so that you, can you tolerate gels? Can you tolerate blocks? Is it liquid carbohydrates that you go really well with? How much of that can you consume on the bike going into the run? What flavors do you like? What texture? Like forget the science, like the practicality of this is so important because like some of those gels are absolutely disgusting. Like, absolutely rank so i obviously have my favorites that i recommend to athletes and they tend to go down very well uh, but there are some horrible products out there that like will make you gag and if the first time you're going to try that product is on a race day that you've been training for five months for and then you nearly vomit in your mouth because you can't actually take it down like it's going to be a bad day especially when you're out there for five and a half hours like it's not going to be an enjoyable experience so why not dial all that in in your training enjoy the flavors that you actually you know well find the flavors that you enjoy find the textures you enjoy find the products that actually fuel for the purpose of what you're trying to achieve and then practice that consistently so that when you get to the race day you're actually like oh this is easy this is second nature i just i'm doing this every 20 minutes 
I consume three blocks every 20. I have a gel after that in the next 20. I then have a sip of this or, you know, and it just becomes a routine so that you're not thinking about your nutrition. You're therefore then focusing on what you guys do, which is the coaching element. They're focusing on their, you know, their effort or their watts or their heart rate, whatever, whatever metric you're using, their pace, um, you know, to make sure that they have the race of their lives. So you're okay with liquid nutrition then? Not really. <laughs> um, awesome. So uh, yeah, no, look, I, I think um, liquid nutrition is a really interesting one. I think for the majority of athletes who are suffering from GI issues, especially with the run off the bike, I think look at what you're consuming. And if it's a hypertonic solution, i.e. a high carbohydrate solution, then I would say that's probably potentially the primary culprit for what's going on because it's going to be drawing fluid into the gut. Um, I think if you're a really fast athlete, I think there could be a role for carbohydrate liquids because of the ease of consumption and the practicality standpoint. Like it's a tricky one because I think if you're in that aero position and you are going really quick, like handling gels and blocks can become problematic. So we have played even with drinking gels out of bottles with some of the pro athletes. And that seems to be working really well, but that comes down to the consistency of the gel. So you've got to find the gels that actually go down really quick. Um, so Canada endurance tap. I love endurance tap. I think it's, it's such a great product. I don't know if you guys know it. Um, it's maple syrup. It tastes amazing. Um, I mean, it, there's nothing better than just drinking some maple syrup. Um, oh no, this you haven't had it, Jesse? No, I, I, uh, I'm just not a huge fan of maple syrup. Oh, I'm more really? of a honey guy. Okay. Have you? You got to watch the start of Super Troopers. That's your. Super I've had an athlete who was sponsored by them, so I'm obviously in, and I eat breakfast, so I'm also familiar that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, so, I think so when you say liquid, though, like what's your definition? Because you said drinking gels. So, like for years, I've had relatively viscous gels mixed with a little bit of water in a flask, and it's seventy percent gel and thirty percent water, and then I slam it that way. So, like, is that too liquidy for you, or? Look, it's it's always this thing as well. It's like, why? What is the oxidation rate? So, if we look at the research again, and they look at the the oxidation rates of um, of the products, the the oxidation carbohydrate oxidation rate appears to be fairly similar across the products. But then you look at like gastric emptying, and if you've got a hypertonic solution in the gut, say like you know, let's just say Gatorade in the gut, the gastric emptying is going to be slowed down. But then. And it's not quite clear, like, why can you take in, say, a gel, which is a little bit more viscous, as you say, and you don't get that issues with gastric emptying? Is it because it's like a bolus of carbohydrate that can pass through into that, um, out of the gut, into the intestine very quickly, and then you're flushing it with water? I don't know. And it's, I haven't fully understood, and I don't think anyone really can explain why that is the case versus heap of liquid going in at a highly concentrated amount, which then I think just pulls in the gut. Um, so I think in terms of what you're saying, like some of the gels are liquid enough to just have that small amount, which is like a mouthful of that gel into give you 30 grams of carbs, you swallow it versus it being dispersed across a larger volume of liquid, which is effectively what the carbohydrate liquid would be doing. So I think that's where it is. I think it comes down to the volume of the liquid or the carbohydrate that you're also consuming and managing that across the day. So, but to Jesse's point, like in terms of carbohydrate liquids, I think if you, if you are moving very quickly, there could be the argument to maybe use a high a carbohydrate liquid at the start of the bike just to get your numbers up just to get it up like, okay, we're going to try and get 90, 120 grams of carbs in the first hour. And we're going to do that with liquid. You then, okay, let's say it's a, what would you do for a bike? 220 or something for 70.3? Less than that if you're moving and you're a guy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, what were two you? Hours two, two hours. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so we try and get that in, in the first hour. Then you've got an hour to try and get that liquid out you know, just through natural gastric emptying, but maybe consume the next hour of carbohydrates in the form of gels. Again, that might be just, let's say, okay, I know, I don't know. Am I allowed to mention brands or not? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like precision hydration has 30 gram gels, which I think is really cool because majority of gels are like 
25 grams, that extra five grams actually can be like kicker because you start as a male taking those on every 15. If you take that every 15 minutes or every 20 minutes, like you're suddenly up at that 120 grams an hour. So that's a way of pushing it up. And they could take a bottle of carbohydrates, whether it's Morton. I wouldn't recommend Gatorade. I just haven't seen anyone who's done very well with it. And I'm not a hater of Gatorade. I just haven't seen anyone do well, but I'm sure there's heaps of athletes that do well. Um, and then use those gels or blocks. Cliff blocks are really good. People like just sticking them in their mouth and letting it dissolve. Teeth issues, I'm not too keen on just letting it dissolve, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but you find what method works for you to get that amount of carbs in. Now, again, 120 grams of carbs an hour. Has any Have you guys done it? Oh, yeah. I've done more than that, and I'm little. Okay. So, but it, did it take you a little bit of time to get to that amount? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to practice. Because, I, mean, exactly. I mean, I don't know when that study came out, but basically it must have been 15, 20 years ago where they, when they, when they used to say one gram of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight. And then they said, oh, wait, you can train your gut. We can get you up to 1.5. And then you're in the sport and you know some of the best. I mean, I always, my, my friend, Lindsay Corbin, I don't know how many times she's been top 10 in Hawaii, but a lot. And she's the best eater I've ever known. Like, and she's been training it since day one you know her and her and sarah have a competition i reckon <laughs> yeah probably but so like but when Lindsay first started you know we're talking like 2003 or four and and then i think she did her first ironman maybe five like we're going out on these hundred mile rides and she's just like eating at minute 15 like we just watched i just watched her finish breakfast and she's eating and then she's been doing that however many times a week for decades now and she can just consume and consume and consume. And what does that mean? She can race at a higher intensity. Um, but so I guess anyways, you can talk about the science, but that's one thing that like, yeah, we've definitely, all three of us have been training it for years at this point. Now I train it on the couch though. <laughs> and I think like, you're right, the science and, you know, I mentioned grams per kilo body weight. I think starting with that as like, a benchmark for athletes is really good. Like, you know, as I said, females aiming around 0.8 grams per kilo body weight, males aiming for one gram per kilo body weight as the benchmark of the minimum amount they want to be consuming. Once you get to that, then start to look at just grams per hour. So go, okay, I want to get to at least 60 grams an hour. Now I want to get to 70. Now I want to get to 80, 90, 100, 110, 120. Beyond 120 grams an hour, I don't think there's any benefit, honestly. I think the body hits some type of threshold. And I think we're also seeing this in terms of oxidation of carbohydrates, that there is a rate limiting amount. Even if you go above that, the amount of carbohydrates being oxidized doesn't appear to actually be impacted. So that is an important point. And we played around this with athletes consuming 140, 160 grams an hour, and they were wearing things like the glucose monitors and that, and they actually just felt terrible. They not only did they, they, they sort of had like a hypogly, hypoglycemic sort of response to that afterwards and just felt terrible for the rest, for the next two days. So I wouldn't necessarily advise going above that 120 grams an hour. And I think that sort of is round about the threshold. And then that sets you up for the run as well, which I think is important. And back to your, you're talking about the research and, you know, yeah, we, we realized that 60 grams an hour is probably the maximum amount of carbohydrates in the form of glucose that can be tolerated due to the saturation of those transporters. Then they started talking about multi types of multi-transporter type carbohydrates where you, you hear about glucose and fructose. Um, the issue with fructose is that fructose uh, will generally slow down uh, gastric emptying and cause a lot of GI distress. So you've got to be very careful when you're introducing, <clears throat> when you're introducing fructose into that amount, just be, be aware that it can cause an increase in GI distress. So it's got to be phased in and the body's got to get used to tolerating that amount of glucose and fructose together. Can I shift um, just a little bit away from race nutrition? I know we're starting to get close to the, the top of the hour and we don't want to take too much of your time, but I have another question. I, while we have you here, I want to take advantage of it with topics that come up often with athletes I've coached. And one of them that isn't talked about a lot, but it comes up often is uh, vitamin D deficiency in, in endurance athletes. That's a big one. And it, there's not a lot out there on it. 
and it comes up. I have a lot of my athletes do blood work at least once a year, if not twice a year. And that's the most common thing. I know, you know, obviously everybody knows about iron deficiencies, especially in female athletes to watch for, but more commonly what I see in male and female endurance athletes across the board, which is causing all kinds of health problems and performance problems is vitamin D deficiencies. Can you share with us a little bit on that? Yeah, and, and I guess this comes back to the the start of the topic, wasn't it about baselines and understanding what you actually need? So, you know, I would 100% recommend that every athlete, well, every athlete we work with, we recommend that they get a blood panel done and we tell them what to get done. Uh, and that incorporate, you say everyone's aware of iron. I'd, I'd probably disagree with that. I don't think I've seen too many female triathletes with good iron panels, to be honest. Their ferritin levels usually stink and their hemoglobin is down and so they're iron anemic. Um, I mean, and, they're aware to be conscious of getting that tested. I'm not saying that yeah, they're yeah. up to snuff, but I'm just saying they're aware uh, of it. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think, I think, I think as a, as a triathlete, I think you should be getting your bloods done uh, twice a year. I'd be getting it done coming into winter. Um, so just before winter, I would be getting it done to see what your level post summer is for something like vitamin D. It should ideally be optimal going into winter. But I think what you see more often than not is that vitamin D levels in the Northern hemisphere suck. Um, and, and that's probably due just to the weather and the sunlight. <clears throat> so, you know, beyond October in the Northern hemisphere, the sun won't produce vitamin D in the human body because of the wavelength differences. So if you're going in from October, November with a suboptimal vitamin D level, by the time you get to February, March, you're going to be well and truly deficient. So if you're not supplementing with vitamin D across that winter period, and you're already in low period in, in low numbers, then you, you certainly are going to see that they're either insufficient or deficient. Um, you, look, vitamin D is one of those ones that's talked about a lot and it gained a lot of interest because of a lot of studies and they were sort of linking vitamin D to absolutely everything. I think it's pretty clear now that vitamin D isn't necessarily linked to performance per se. It's certainly more linked to health and in particular bone health and probably tendon and muscle in that sense, but it's not necessarily like higher levels of vitamin D aren't suddenly going to make your VO2 go through the roof or anything like that. I don't think there's any evidence to support that. But from a health perspective, obviously, if you've got low vitamin D and a lot of triathletes, again, go back to the DEXA scan, I do see a lot of low bone mineral density in female athletes. If you've got low vitamin D and you've got low bone mineral density, then yeah, you're at risk of potentially a stress reaction, stress fracture, uh, and then you're going to be out of action for a long time. So that is going to have an impact on performance from that standpoint. Um, so I, I would certainly get vitamin D tested uh, twice a year, get it, as I said before, winter, and then get it probably, you know, six months later and just keep an eye on that. Um, the, I, one thing that's uh, strangely I've seen, and it's actually seen it pretty common is, and it makes no sense because of it, you know, you're talking about sunlight and winter and those kinds of things. And just for our listeners is that like, professional athletes that live in Tucson, where we get a lot of sun year round, and they do all of their training and most of their life outside and, um, and come back with, you know, very deficient vitamin D. And I'm just, I, I it's almost like it doesn't make sense to me. Do you want me to explain it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what do you wear when you go out in the morning? Well, the, and these are athletes, as I'm saying, that aren't wearing sunscreen either. Yeah, but they're wearing tights. And they're wearing like, you know, they wear tops down to their wrists. They wear full leggings. Generally, they'll wear sunglasses. So, you don't, okay, they're not wearing sunnies? Or long, like, I mean, it's it's like 100 degrees here or like 90 degrees. So they're going out in like a jersey and shorts for six-hour rides day after day. And it's like sunny. But they're generally going out early morning, aren't they? I mean, early, but it's it, the sun is up. Yeah, I see. I, I think what what tends to happen is I, I think majority of them are training very early in the in the morning. They don't actually get that sun exposure. By the time they are training later in the morning, they've probably got their sunglasses on. They may have put a jersey on at that point just to protect them from the sun, and and probably put on a little bit of sunscreen. So and then the rest of the day they spend indoors because they don't go outside. And so it's it's the total um, accrue accruement of that exposure that I think is going to make the difference. And I, I just think what happens is again, you know, you go to the pool and they're swimming, they might be outdoor swimming, but they're swimming in, you know, either early morning or they're swimming indoors. 
Um, so they're not actually getting that exposure on a regular basis. And I think it, it is one of those things when you take a step back, actually go, how much sun exposure do I get? And am I actually getting it on the full amount of my body? Because the other thing that is required in terms of the body to produce vitamin D is it needs exposure on the entire body. Um, if you think of a jersey, there's only arm exposure and a little bit of leg exposure. They usually pull their socks up quite high. Um, you've, you've literally got what between the lower third of your thigh and the upper part of your tibia exposed from that perspective. So, you know, what I'd be recommending is it's like, you're talking 15 minutes in your bud. You've been to Australia and your budgie smugglers, uh, you know, full exposure or in your bikini sitting on your deck and reading the newspaper, um, and getting full 15, 20 minutes exposure without sunglasses on to, to try and get your levels up. But as I said, from October to probably March, it's not even possible from a sun perspective. Great, thank you. Awesome, I know we've had you on here for, for a super long time. Um, so you told us a little bit about your history, you kind of introduced what you're doing now, but let's give you a chance to talk a little bit more about what you're doing now that you know might be beneficial to triathletes and um, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I never, I, I'm always a little bit reluctant to do like a hard sell or anything, but I always get in trouble by the CEO to say, <laughs> hey, you got to sell the product. And it's like, uh, but anyway, look, we, we run a program called Fuel In um, and they can go to the website or you can download it from uh, the iOS store. It is, um, you know, it's a nutrition, a performance nutrition platform and program that is designed uh, for triathletes in particular, um, but we do have in, in mind endurance athletes and we have other types like marathon runners and uh, Ultraman on the program. Um, it syncs with training peaks in today's plan, uh, which is really cool. So any, any coaches out there with uh, their athletes on today's plan or training peaks, our system syncs with that. So we know exactly when the athlete is actually training and at what intensity and what duration they're training. So we can program those meals before, during, and after every session, and then look at that across the entire day and the entire week. And we compare week on week so that depending on what the athlete's goal is, whether it be performance versus say something like weight loss or, or fat loss, we then apply um, you know the appropriate amounts of calories or energy intake to that. Um, the big focus is on health, as we said. So there's a big education part to it. Uh, we do weekly Q and A's with anyone who's on the program, where it's either myself or Elizabeth Impen, um, going through real life questions like this. It's probably like a podcast every week where athletes are asking questions and we're going through it and we try and do a big education push. Um, and then there's the ability, like we talked about with carbohydrates and we didn't get into sweat testing and uh, hydration strategies and maybe another time we'll do that. But, you know, the ability for the athlete to track their carb consumption and actually work on improving that. And then from a hydration standpoint, understanding sweat rates and understanding what they require on, say, like the bike and the run in differing temperatures and what their threat rate um, liters per hour is going to be. So, um, you know, it's complicated, but what we try and do is, is break down the complicated world of nutrition and make it really simple. We have sort of, you know, three things that we aim to do, and that's uh, to keep it simple, be personalized and provide results. And they're sort of the three uh, key metrics that we look at for, our, for our, everyone who's on it. Awesome. Do you guys have um, any other questions before we, uh, we wrap it up here? No, I, I really appreciate your time. You know, the nutrition topic is such a huge one. And I think, you know, we could probably sit here and talk for five hours and only just brush the surface. And so we really appreciate you taking the time just to, I think the, the most important things that people are going to take away from today is very specific numbers that you put out there. I think a lot of times people talk about nutrition and they don't give detailed specifics like that. And I really appreciate you uh, putting that out there for our listeners and giving, you know, if people want to write down numbers as they're listening, they can actually have some educated you know, if they're starting to put some plans together or even just trying to do a little bit on their own. And, and then if they get stumped, they can reach out to you or look up your, look up your app. And, um, but at least they've got some starting numbers to, to get themselves pointed in the right direction. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, like I think, you know, triathlon or triathletes, and I guess this is why, probably why I like it. You're all data driven and you love numbers. So it makes the world of nutrition sort of quite interesting, but I would also emphasize that 
what we really try and do is get athletes like focusing on, you know, sometimes moving away from the numbers as well. I know the numbers are really important and we do stress like understanding and having a good understanding of those numbers and applying that, but sometimes moving away from numbers and, and just feeling what you're eating or looking at what you're eating and going, yep, that is about right. That is what I need to be doing. I think that's part of the process as well. So that, you know, we talk about vegetables, just making sure you're having like six fists of veggies, um, you know, as a, as a goal, eating that, you know, if it's hands of protein, there are ways of getting away from numbers, but still hitting your targets in terms of macronutrients. Uh, we, I mean, we talked about numbers specifically around protein, I guess. We talked a little bit about carbohydrates in terms of racing, but, you know, how do those carbohydrate numbers work from a, a day-to-day perspective and how does that impact sort of preparing for a race um you know there, there is so much to go into and you know i really appreciate the opportunity just to i guess touch the surface with this stuff and hopefully it generates um you know some thought amongst your listeners and um more questions because i think the more people are asking about this type of stuff i think the better and i think if you know shows like yours where you're trying to educate I guess our goal is as coaches, isn't it, is to educate and to try and, you know, make their lives better. And I think, you know, things like this, it is an opportunity to do that. Awesome. That was great. Yeah. It's uh, I wish we had, you know, a few more hours to go into all the details there, but hopefully people did get some good tidbits. And if not, they can reach out to any of us or hopefully reach out to you and, and fire some more questions your way and check out the app. Cool. Thank you. So Yeah. Thank you for your time. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott.